Welcome to the First Church Orlando podcast. Here you will find recordings of weekly sermons, devotions, interviews, and seminar recordings from the First United Methodist Church of Orlando. For more information about First Church Orlando, please visit our website at firstchurchorlando.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, enjoy the podcast. Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Joel, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 2 and 12 through 17. Blow the horn in Zion, give a shout on my holy mountain. Let all the people of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and no light. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness spread out upon the mountains, a great and powerful army comes, unlike any that has ever come before them, or will come after them in centuries ahead. Yet even now, says the Lord, return to me with all your hearts, with fasting, with weeping, and with sorrow. Tear your hearts and not your clothing. Return to the Lord your God, for she is merciful and compassionate, very patient, full of faithful love, and ready to forgive. Who knows whether she will have a change of heart and leave a blessing behind her, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the horn in Zion, Demand a fast. Request a special assembly. Gather the people. Prepare a holy meeting. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the groom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the porch and the altar, let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep. Let them say, have mercy, Lord, on your people. And don't make your inheritance a disgrace, an example of failure among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? The word of God for the people of God. We have worship planning meetings on Tuesday. And on those meetings, we discuss the worship to come in the coming week. Um, This past Tuesday, the morning before we had our meeting. I was looking for texts to preach for this occasion, and I was still undecided when I got to our worship planning meeting, and then I discovered that a bulletin had already been printed with a text in it, prepared for me, that had been chosen, which is sometimes helpful, sometimes not. In this case, it's, it's proven to be, I think, a poignant text. This text is a text of a people in crisis. These are a people who are experiencing, the people of the book of Joel that we're reading are experiencing an existential threat, a threat that seems to come at them from all sides, and they are looking forward to how that threat will impact them. And Joel suggests that more bad is to come if things continue as they're happening right now. 
So what is happening? What we did not read in the text, the book of Joel begins with the description of a plague of locusts that has totally devastated the land. Um, Scholars debate whether the locusts are metaphorical or if it was actual locusts, and they tend to agree it was actual locusts. This was devastating for the people because they were radically dependent upon the land for their crop. If they did not have their crop, then they did not eat. The threat that an all-consuming invasion like locusts posed was not a small threat. It was an existential threat. So Joel says, bad is happening now. Bad, more bad may come from this. And what is the bad that Joel is predicting? Joel is predicting that people may respond to an economy of scarcity, of not enoughness. If there is not enough food and people go hungry, people begin to act out of fear. They are no longer acting charitably towards their neighbor. They are behaving from a place of animalistic survival. And if the people of Joel's time moved in the uh, context of an economy of scarcity, then there would be a true problem for the people of Israel. This text is a prophetic text. And prophetic texts, much like any other text that we read, bears with it genre conventions. There are certain motifs that arise in the prophetic texts of the Old Testament in the same way that we find genre conventions in comedy or horror or a sermon. We can expect certain things of these texts. One of the things that we can expect is that prophecy, a misunderstanding of a prophetic text, is the sense that this is something that is going to tell us what is going to happen in the future. The prophet does not do the work of telling us what the price of oil is going to be in a month. The prophet does not do the work of telling us whether or not a comet is going to hit the earth in 20 years. The way that a prophet works with time is a prophet speaks truth that transcends time. It is applicable to all contexts. So if the prophet is speaking about a truth in the future, it is true because it is always true. An example of this, a helpful example of this, is a prophetic text that is not so far removed from our context. This is a prophetic text that some of you may be familiar with. It is Dr. King's Christmas Sermon on Peace. I'll read that for you. It reads... If we are to have peace on earth, our loyalties must become ecumenical rather than sectional. No individual can live alone. No nation can live alone. And as long as we try, the more we are going to have war in this world. The judgment of God is upon us. And we must either learn to live together as brothers or we're all going to perish together as fools. All of life is interrelated. 
We are all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. We are made to live together because of the interrelated structure of reality. This is a prophetic text. It matches the first genre convention and that it is true now and it will remain true. It is true that we are all bound up in an inescapable network of mutuality. Christ talks about it in this way. Christ says that when you see the poor, you see me. Where you see the hungry, there I am. Where there is war, I am there. Where you hoard wealth, I am the one who goes without. Now, there are two interpretations of Christ's sayings. One is esoteric. It is indeed true that Christ is in the eyes of the homeless person that we passed on South Street because Christ lives behind each of your eyes. It is also true in a more concrete sense in that when I go hungry, It is inevitably true that you suffer some consequences as well. If oil is restricted in one area, we, whether we are separated by a continent, suffer in some way as well. Where it is true in one case in time, it is true in all cases in time. The other genre convention that binds both Joel and Dr. Martin Luther King is the prophet deals in judgment and hope. These are two motifs that the prophet plays with. In the history of Israel, in the older prophets, judgment was reserved for Israel's enemies. So when we spoke of judgment and hope, we spoke of judgment by those who threatened the nation of Israel. And we spoke of hope for the nation of Israel, hope for security and salvation as God's guaranteed people. We have God on our side. Therefore, hope and faith and goodness is reserved for us and judgment for those others. In latter prophets, latter prophets of the Old Testament tradition, Judgment and hope are mashed together. They are no longer distinguished by an other and the nation of Israel. Instead, judgment is both for the nation of Israel as well as hope. They're often tied together. So judgment in this case is not necessarily something that comes from the outside. This is not an angry God who is punishing the unrighteous or the sinful. Rather, judgment is something that the poetic prophets saw as necessarily being the case. These are just consequences. Consequences that are built into the fabric of our creation. So, if you do not feed the hungry, then there will be people who will be moving and speaking from fear rather than from a sense of abundance. And there are consequences to having a group of people who only move in fear. So, the prophet says, how do we respond to 
the potential for judgment, for justice that is built into the fabric of our being. The prophet says the move that a community must take in a situation such as the one that Joel found himself in is to return to God. This is something that I have experienced in my own life. This is the experience of running against a wall. So the the Israelites in this story have just, their crop has been decimated from locusts. There is nowhere to turn. And Joel suggests, where else to turn when you have nowhere to turn but God? Anne Lamott is a contemporary writer, and she phrases it this way. I hope that after this service you'll forgive me. I'll read you the quote from Anne Lamott. It says, Finally, if you are lucky, the gift of desperation, i.e. God, gives you the insight that you're in no position to dicker over how or by whom your sorry ass is going to be saved. That is, in experiences where we have nowhere else to turn, we turn to God. This is the wisdom of groups like Alcoholics Anonymous. This is the wisdom of me, a grad student in seminary, who has some performance anxiety about getting a paper done and feels that there's nowhere else to turn but to get on my knees and pray for help. This is the move of a family who's run into financial hardship, and what can they do but pray? It turns out that this is a wise move, this asking for help. Why? Why should we turn to God? Joel gives us good reason in Joel's description of God, which Joel knows comes from the Old Testament corpus. In verse 14, Joel quotes the Credo of Adjectives. The Credo of Adjectives is a text from Exodus, Exodus 34. It is the first experience of God describing God's character to the people while they're in the wilderness. This is immediately after they have been liberated from Egypt. They are in the wilderness. They have begun their 40 years in the desert. And Moses goes onto a mountaintop and asks God, what should I say to the people about who you are? And God says, say this. She is merciful. You'll notice that I used the pronoun she. I do think it's helpful to refer to God with different images. But it turns out that my use of the pronoun she with regards to this text is appropriate. The word mercy is related to a Hebrew word, closely related. Mercy is rekhum and womb is rakhum. Therefore, the love that God has for God's people and for each of you and for the people outside of the church and for a people that are separated from us by a continent is the love that a mother has for her child. 
This is a very specific kind of love. When God says, I am mercy, God is saying, I am womb-like mother love. It is the capacity of the mother to totally give herself over to the need and reality and identity of her child. This love, mothers know, is unconditional. This is God's love for you. This is God's love that is being testified to by Joel. This is the love that permeates our existence. It is everywhere. There's a parable that I often like to tell. I may have told it in church before. The parable goes like this. There are these two fish. They're hanging out. The fish are hanging out. An older, wise fish, you can imagine with a big old beard, a fish beard, swims by the two younger fish and says to the fish, Hey, y'all, how's the water? He keeps swimming by, and eventually the older fish is out of sight, and one of the younger fish turns over to the other younger fish and goes, Hey, what is water? The reality that the parable points to is that sometimes the most real realities in our lives are realities that encompass us. I mentioned that the fear that Joel had for his community was that his people would move out of an economy of scarcity, an economy that makes you small, an economy that people can profit from, they can profit from your fear, an economy that we can live in if we are told that we are never enough. The opposite reality, the God reality, the realist reality is an economy of abundant love merciful love, mother love. And sometimes it takes us running into our limitations to rely upon the realness, the palpable reality of God's love for us. And we discover, in fact, I am enough. And you are enough. And we are enough. And anybody who would dare to tell us differently is telling us a lie. Here is a simple truth. There are others beside you. There are others beyond these walls. There are others that are separated us from us by oceans. And the real reality is that we are attached to them. And that that attachment is concrete. We are one family, bound together in an inescapable network of mutuality. And there is no escape from it. I need you, and you need me, and we need each other. Mother love, like the love that God has for us, is the love that is liberated from an isolated care of only self, small self, to the large self, the self that bears and bore an other, the self that knows that my well-being is inextricably attached to yours. Amen.
We hope you enjoyed the podcast and that you will listen again in the future. If you enjoyed today's message, we hope you'll subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform and share it with others on social media. For more information about First Church Orlando, please visit our website at firstchurchorlando.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If this podcast is a valuable resource to you, we invite you to give to this ministry by making a financial contribution at firstchurchorlando.org forward slash give. Now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.